0: You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702, The Naked Scientist. Dr. Chris Smith, how are you doing? Did you have a fantastic weekend?
1: Well, I was on medical duty. Uh-huh. But that's not unusual for me because I seem to be on all the time at the moment. I wonder why anyone would think it was a pandemic on or something. No, I had I had a very pleasant weekend actually because luckily I wasn't first on. I was second on, so I had a colleague who is uh, in the front line, and I was helping her out. So it was it was quite nice. Um, yes, the weather was. Not too unpleasant on one of the days, and I've just moved house, so we all know what that's like. So, actually, having a chance to start sorting things out and going through boxes and things, it's uh, it was actually quite nice.
0: That's going so, to be uh, yes, my how was life, your weekend? that's going to be my life next week is moving house. Are you moving? <laughs> oh, and where, I'm where dreading, I'm literally moving in this into the same neighborhood as, as what I'm staying in, just the bigger place because babies take up a lot of space. Maybe you need to oh, tell me tell the me science <laughs> of how to do. It without losing your mind, <laughs> <laughs>
1: do you know what I did? Actually, I I bought myself earlier this year because I knew I had to move a lot of studio gear and that kind of thing. Because I had to, I basically had to build a whole new studio and everything when I was where I was moving to. I bought myself a really big trailer earlier in the year, as in one I could put a tractor on as well as other yes. things. So a big trailer, and I moved in pieces. So rather than one chaotic, horrible, frantic day where you have to get everything out and everything in all on the same day and it's awful i basically did a trailer load at a time and i eventually i paid some people who are real professionals to come in and just do the stuff that i was either going to break or break myself moving and and it was a much more sedate move it it was still painful but it was not as bad as if we'd had to try and do 15 years in one place all in one go with all the kids and all that kind of stuff so That's what I do. That would be my advice, would be to try and, try and do it piecemeal. And do you know the other amazing thing is that I'm I'm a bit of a hoarder, but my wife <laughs> is like a hoarder of steroids. I,
0: I love that and, you openly admit that. And,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm a little bit of a hoarder because there's always a use for these things. And, and you would be surprised how many things you can find an amazing job for when you think, see, it's a good job I kept that. But my wife is worse, much, much worse. She She's kind of verging on the kind of got a clinical problem with it and so having all this stuff that you're trying to convince people you just don't need you can get rid of very very hard to convince them but if you divorce everyone like me from their junk for a number of months which is what we managed to do by packing a lot of the stuff up first and putting it in the new house then you can convince yourself actually i don't need this stuff I, i really don't i can live without a lot of this stuff for four months and, and that's what we did. And so it's, it's actually making turfing out a lot of this junk much easier. So it's good for decluttering as well. Painful at the time, but it's good for sort of long-term sanity because we have got a lot more space now and there's a lot of stuff has gone in the bin that I don't know why I kept.
0: Thank you so much. I'm going to take that advice and do it in phases because it is extremely uh, overwhelming. And um, yeah, I didn't think I'd ever be getting advice from the Dr. Christmas on moving house. But let's go to the lines. 11 is where you can call us, send us your voice notes, your questions on WhatsApp 72 We have Martin in Pretoria. Hi, Martin.
1: Hello. How are you guys?
0: We are great. Thank Hi, you. Hi, Martin.
1: Good
0: good um I just want to find out what in layman 's terms what is the difference between supercomputers and quantum
1: computers uh, hi martin right a, a, a supercomputers exist right now quantum computers are very much an experimental concept that doesn't exist practically for solving problems in the real world yet but will in the future and will be incredibly powerful what's a supercomputer well you take a computer like the computers that we all have sitting on our desks and you write a clever architecture both in terms of the software but also the hardware so that you can take a big problem and divide it up into a series of more tractable smaller problems and share it out among enormous numbers of lots of small computers all connected together in one big cluster in a supercomputer you also have the problem of paying a very large electricity bill because you know the power consumption of these things is measured in megawatts but that that is the basic premise of a supercomputer. You are using enormous amounts of processing power. When you present a problem to it, it can do what would take your desktop computer a thousand years, it will do it in an afternoon because it is harnessing the power of many, many computers in one place with a very clever, very fast connectivity between all the different things. It's very good at breaking the problem down and sharing the problem among this enormous architecture to solve the problem piecemeal, but all in parallel and very, very quickly, therefore. A quantum computer works in a totally different way. The computers we've built at the moment work in a serial way. You put a a question in, it solves the problem, and then it goes on and solves the next problem and the next problem. So it's a sort of linear process. A quantum computer will be able to do a lot of that sort of stuff in parallel in a massive way and consider things with many more degrees of freedom. A good way of thinking about this is our present computers work in binary, 0 and 1, black and white. But with a quantum computer, it's not a black and white thing. It's all the grayscale between the two. And because it can consider all of these different degrees of freedom, it gives it this enormous bandwidth in terms of, of solutions to problems. And as one person put it to me, the minute we have a functioning quantum computer, all of our current internet security protocols go straight out of the window because at the moment we're protected with a password, for example, from someone breaking into your website because it would take them so long to try every possible combination that the internet would have reinvented itself by the time they broke the decent password. But a quantum computer would solve that in a blink of an eye. So we'd have to rethink how we do internet security, for example, all kinds of security, actually. But those sorts of things don't exist yet. And it's partly a problem of actually how you build it and and actually how we make it work. We've got the concept, but putting that into practice, there are are examples of these things. But they're a bit like the pocket calculator to the modern day computer at the moment compared to where we, we conceptually think we will be ultimately.
0: All right. Uh, thank you so much for that, Doctor. We've got Christine in Pretoria. Hi, Christine. Hello. I, I'm not sure if you can hear me. Can you hear me? We can hear you perfectly fine. Okay. Thanks. Uh, my question is regarding the Omicron variant. And I'm assuming, uh, I just make a few assumptions, So, it's now. I'm assuming that the aim of each living organism is survival and Um, multiplication of itself then uh, regarding to the omicron variant it seems to be more transmissible than the previous variants and it also seems to be less deadly Um, and then would these two characteristics be due to the virus evolving towards a higher level of multiplication by being more transmissible and infecting more people and a higher chance of survival of the virus because with a dead end host the virus also eventually stops multiplying Or could the seemingly less deadly virus simply be as a result of more people having been vaccinated? Thank you. That's my question. i am listening on the radio. All right, doctor. Did you get that?
1: Yeah. Very insightful question. And the answer is, obviously, we don't know for sure. But this is a very tantalizing and tempting, juicy hypothesis, which is if we take a step back from COVID for a minute and we say, well, when viruses jump species and they get into a new host, in this case, coronavirus covid has jumped into the human and is causing covid 19 at the moment but this has happened many times through history look at hiv in about the early 1900s a chimpanzee variant of hiv jumped out of chimpanzees and got into people and evolved to be hiv and has since caused actually probably the worst pandemic that we've ever encountered everyone thinks the spanish flu was an example but probably hiv was Uh, that's an example of an infection jumping the species barrier and then establishing itself in a new host. Out of the HIV pandemic, what we have seen is the emergence, slowly and at huge human cost admittedly, but of people who are completely impossible to infect with the virus and also people who are very good at controlling the virus if they catch it. And we've seen the virus change its behaviour in response to the way in which we respond to the virus. So there's an evolution of the virus and an evolution of us, the host. We've seen the same thing with influenza. When you get a pandemic strain of flu comes fresh into humans from normal bird hosts. Initially, it causes devastation, but very quickly it becomes much more moderate in its impact. We become much better at defending ourselves against it and you reach a steady state equilibrium again, where we tolerate the virus and the virus tolerates us. We're easier bedfellows. Why should there be that path, that reaching of that equilibrium? Because exactly as you point out in your question, if a virus is too destructive, it will rob itself of hosts like Ebola, for example. When it first jumps into people, 70, 80 percent mortality rate very quickly. This is like a fire burning like an inferno It's going to run out of fuel. If it runs out of fuel by leaving people in its wake, either dead or immune for life, then it runs out of potential people to infect. It runs out of runway. Basically, it can't continue to transmit. So therefore, there is an advantage to an infectious disease to be transmissible, get to lots of people, but at the same time, not kill too many people or not make people very obviously unwell. Because all the time you've got something which is very, very uh, clinically apparent. It makes it easy to stop, easy to spot, and people don't want it. They want to do something about it. So they put barriers in its way. If you've got something which is pretty innocuous and it doesn't cause you much trouble, you're more likely to tolerate it as a population, whatever sort of species you are, whether you're a bacterium right through to a human. And so, therefore, the natural progression of these sorts of infections in a population is an equilibrium position where you get an evolution of the virus towards a less pathogenic state, which is nevertheless compensated by being highly transmissible and therefore highly prevalent And in the human, you get a compensation where we select out from the population people who are good at keeping that thing in a non-pathological state. It doesn't make them very ill, but they're pretty good at transmitting it. So we think that that should be the ultimate endpoint for COVID because we've seen this happen with coronaviruses before, we think, in humans. And so at the moment, this may be, South Africa's um, variant may be, the example of how this is going to happen on the other hand it may just be one of those offshoots from the from the virus as it goes about its evolution and it may just fizzle out we don't know
0: but just to clarify it's not actually our variant we discovered it
1: yeah it did and thank goodness you did <laughs> yes. because um and, and, and i mean the, we were talking about this again i was talking about this with someone yesterday and we were saying you know that this is so ridiculous isn't it the fact that um you know what's the response of the world when something comes along and someone tells them about it oh well we'll we'll shut the door then thanks very much because yeah. what, what will that what message does that send out we'll keep quiet next time i mean it's not it's not what we want is it
0: yes definitely not what we want when we come back we continue with dr christmas
1: 702
0: the naked scientist all right we are continuing with dr christmas here is an interesting question from sam in tembisa dr chris Why is it so difficult for scientists to tell whether what falls into a black hole stays or emerges on the other side? Neighboring galaxy Andromeda is nicely lined up from outline of sight here on Earth, and we can see the top and bottom. Why then can't we see through specialized telescopes if there's material coming out the other end?
1: A black hole is an area of intense gravity because it's very massive in other words there's a lot of material in it and has contributed to it which means it's so massive it bends the fabric of space to such an extent that even light can't escape and that's why it looks black because the things that we use to image space at least until the Nobel Prize in 2016 went to the people who discovered gravitational waves, one of Einstein's predictions, was we were using light of various wavelengths in order to probe the depths of space. Light we can see, that's called visible light, or light at different wavelengths that we can't see, but which can come through all kinds of things like debris and dust and other material, or is given off by different bodies out there in deep space. These include things like microwaves, radio waves, right through to X-rays and gamma rays. But these are all forms of light, which means that a black hole, which is incredibly intense gravitational, uh, which is an incredibly gravitationally active body, will prevent the passage of light coming through that patch of space. But what can come through that patch of space is gravitational waves. And we are now using gravitational wave detectors on the Earth's surface. There are currently three of them, which can resolve arriving waves coming from across the universe, to see interactions between massive bodies in ways that we couldn't before. These include black holes swallowing things, black holes merging, and indeed stars crashing into each other as well. They all cause ripples in the fabric of space, and we can see that. But because a black hole is so gravitationally active, nothing comes out of it, at least in this universe. And some people have suggested that if there are multiple universes, this so-called parallel universe theory, perhaps a black hole is exiting or what's being chucked out or turfed out by a black hole is in fact a big bang in another universe and perhaps that's where all the material going but i mean that's just conjecture at the moment we can't see what's beyond what's called the event horizon of a black hole that's the point at which the gravitational field is so strong and space is so bent that light does not come out so anything that goes in we can't see what happens to it and we certainly can't see things coming out of a black hole the only thing that you might be thinking about are what are called gravitational jets and on some black holes, you can demonstrate beautiful jets of material which are at the poles of the black hole, the top and bottom. And this is where the gravitational field means that objects which are uh, sort of being accelerated there can then be focused and you get a jet or plume of material which is being ripped to pieces, basically, off the top and bottom of the black hole. So you might see some some of that material which is things that have escaped the black hole, they're not actually in the black hole, but anything that's gone in, as far as we know, it's curtains for that, and it gets t- torn to pieces by the intense gravity.
0: Thank you so, so much. Uh, very quickly, we have Rueda in Ondeggers Park. You want to ask something about the water in the uterus? Uh, good afternoon, Rebole uh, yes. and Dr. Chris. Um, is the water in the uterus where the baby's in, is that the same like the water in the ocean?
1: Mm. No, no, it's not. I mean, it's, it's it's still H2O to a point, but it's actually got lots of things dissolved in it. And it sounds a bit yucky, this, but actually a baby develops inside a bag, which it produces itself inside the mum's uterus. And the water that surrounds the baby is initially secreted by the cells that form that bag that the baby grows in, the amniotic sac. But as the baby develops, and from quite early on in development, the the water in the bag is produced by the baby's primitive kidneys and so that water the amniotic fluid is in fact urine and we have all therefore spent the first about 40 weeks of our lives swimming around in a bath of our own pee some people don't change much afterwards but many (laughs) do thankfully clean up their act but it sounds a bit yucky but yes that bag of salty water is basically your own pee pee is salty and so there will be some salt like the sea, but it's not as salty as the sea. The sea is very salty, much, much saltier than body fluids. So it's like a dilute form of, of the sea, yes. But there are some other things in there as well. Dr. Chris,
0: <laughs> thank you so much. The Naked Scientist, I look forward to chatting to you again next week.